Hey everybody, it's Allie, and welcome to our YNR chat for Sunday, January 11th, 2015. We got a ton of snow here in the Midwest this week, and then it got extremely bitter sub-zero cold, but I will admit, YNR kept me pretty warm this week. I love the entire explosion that happened around Victor and Joe's development deal. By far, that was the most compelling storyline for me for the entire week. Um, it also didn't hurt that there included a scene with Joel in a towel. <laughs> but I'll get to all that later. At the beginning of the week, Dylan and Avery are trying to appeal to Joe's human side, getting him or hoping that he will reveal the property owner uh, so that they can have a chance to talk with him directly and, and, and make their case for not selling out the, the, the warehouse district. And Joe probably just to score points with Avery, agrees to try. In fact, that's exactly what it was all about. He said he knows full well that Victor's not going to meet with them, that Victor's not going to budge on this deal, yet he tells Dylan and Avery, all right, I'll see if I can set up a meeting between you guys. He books a suite at the athletic club. And he overhears that Dylan is going to be out of the picture, calls Avery and says, okay, well, we got to meet now. It's now or never. If you want to meet this owner, you're going to have to come. And if Dylan can't be with you, then oh well. So Avery, wanting to save Dylan's business, goes blindly to the athletic club where there's a little run-in. Uh, she's, she's getting ready to go up the stairs to meet in the suite, and there's a little run-in with Michael. She sees him there, and Michael is saying, well, you know, what are you, what are you doing? You're meeting with them alone in a suite? I don't like it. I don't trust Joe. Uh, I, I think you should let me go with you. And Michael was completely intent on escorting her up to the room saying, I'm another lawyer. It can't hurt. I kind of know the situation since I worked with Joe. And I was really hoping that she was going to take him up on that deal because Michael expressing a concern about what was going to happen, what she was going to walk into, what was going to go on in that room upstairs created a real sense of mistrust for me and a sense of danger too, which I wasn't expecting. It was a little bit of a surprise. Avery ended up telling Michael, no, 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 it's a sensitive situation. I don't want to come looking like I'm armed with a bunch of lawyers. I'm going to go at it myself. I'll be fine. And don't tell Dylan about this. Michael agrees to keep her a little secret. She goes up to the room only to find out that she has been duped. There's nobody in the room except her and Joe. He tells her, sorry, the investor's not coming. And of course, he doesn't say this until she's already settled into the room. He's standing by the door and there's this little moment where Joe reaches back and latches the door. He locks the door and I... Don't know how you guys felt, but I felt a sense of trapped. Like, is something bad 
going to happen here? Because Joe, for as sexy as he is, has now lured Avery into this private suite where no one could hear her scream under false pretenses. And it was creepy to me. Was I the only one that got creepy vibe out of that? Um, I don't know. I, I It just felt unsafe and unsavory and again as much as I am liking Joe's character I don't really know him yet uh, you know is he a bad guy uh, we've been speculating and, or, and assuming to some extent or I have anyway that he's kind of a um, a, 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 a bad boy who has a you know a, a, a soft center a soft spot in the center especially for Avery but is there any chance he's bad 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 to the bone it really kind of threw Joe's complete character into question for me there um, he didn't end up doing anything aggressive but it was it was enough to, to, to throw me off it was enough to throw her off rather than being honest and and going through with, you know, talking about the deal, which he never intended to do, I'm sure, uh, he just made his intentions to Avery very, very clear. She was there because he wanted to convince her, get her alone to convince her, that she should not marry Dylan, that she should give their relationship, their marriage, another chance. And I was totally happy when she just busts out of the room. She's like, no, no, no. She, like, flings open the door, rushes out into the hall, and there's this moment where you see her face and realize that it has really rattled her for 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 one reason or another that Joe would do this, go to this length, and then uh, uh, protest his love for her and and also kind of he made an argument about you know you don't really love Dylan or this is just your passing time or whatever he bl totally brushed off her relationship with Dylan as if it was nothing and it really kind of shocked her and it shocked me too because I feel like Avery and Dylan are a really nice couple. Maybe nice is not exciting enough for some people, but I think they're a very charming couple together, and I don't really want to see her with Joe. Am I the only one? I, I, I guess that should be a good question for you guys to tell me this week. Are you feeling Avery with Joe, or are you feeling her with Dylan? And, and surprisingly, as much as I, I think Joe has romantic potential. I don't want it to be with Avery. I'd rather it be with someone fresh so that I can really get into it without all of the guilt. <laughs> uh, Avery goes back to the coffee house and immediately is saying she wants to marry Dylan right now. <laughs> She's come off this um, probably kind of life-changing moment and realizing that... I, either realizing that she wants to marry Dylan or trying to avoid the feelings that she's having for Joe by marrying Dylan, but either way, she wants to do it right now. And Dylan declines at first, and I was happy that he did that. Uh, she did tell him what Joe had done. Dylan, of course, had to stop himself from getting his fists ready and going and, you know, pounding on Joe. I, can you imagine if you were a man and another man lured your fiancé into a hotel suite? Ugh. 
it's not right. <laughs> and I wouldn't have blamed Dylan if of all of the things that Joe has done since he's come into town, I wouldn't have blamed Dylan for wanting to pummel him for that specific instance. But Avery talks him down, says, no, this is exactly what he wants you to do. And so Dylan's kind of calms himself down, but also assesses the situation and realizes, wait a minute, as much as I want to marry you and I believe in our relationship, I'm not going to let Joe dictate when we do it. I'm not going to rush to marrying you because of Joe and whatever tricks he pulls or just to, I don't need to justify our relationship or prove our relationship to anybody by rushing into the marriage, which probably in the long run is going to end up hurting them. I don't know. He ultimately did agree to marry her, although they didn't um, set a date. Avery was talking like she wanted to get married that night, right then and there. Let's go to the justice of the peace. And then it kind of uh, tapered off when the big explosion happened. So I don't know if they are actually going to rush into a marriage within the next week or two, or if that means a month or two, but the longer they wait, it seems like it's giving Joe more of an opportunity, which I just don't, I don't think that's what I want. Um, I don't know. I think I'd, I'd personally, I'd probably choose Dylan if I were Avery, even though Joe is so very sexy. I just, I don't trust him. Trust and attraction are different things. Uh, the next day, Dylan is at the coffee house because it's the day, the evening of Joe's big cocktail presentation. And Dylan is organizing a grassroots protest. They've got posters and they're going to go outside and, and stand there at the, the event and, I guess, hassle people coming in and out or just protest them. Uh, so he's he's getting ready for the, the, the big night. Joe is getting ready for the big night by uh, getting... He's, the, I don't know if it was Tuesday's show, but they opened it up, the, the, the series of scenes with Joe, they open it up with him fresh out of the shower, <laughs> wrapping a towel around his lower half. Ladies and gentlemen, I watched that scene three times. <laughs> I am not even kidding you. I, I, saw, I saw him... The way they had that towel suggestively wrapped, I saw him, my jaw dropped open, and I was like, back it up, <laughs> hold up, back it up, <laughs> I gotta watch that again and again. <laughs> I mean, they wanted us to look. <laughs> Weinard did that for me, I assume. They, I mean, they, they, they zoomed in on the area I was supposed to look, so I was just enjoying the scenery that Weinard provided for me. <laughs> It was wonderful. It's, 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 I guess the feelings that I'm having for Joe, it's, it's, it is, it's, I I like it. That's kind of what I like. I like when I feel attracted to a character, maybe when I shouldn't. (laughs) It's a little naughty and Joe's giving me that right now. Um, everybody knows that Joe is slimy, though. The only one he shows any tenderness toward it is Avery. Uh, the, the cocktail party or presentation is beginning, and Jill is downstairs making the rounds. Victor shows up, and there is a confrontation scene between Jill and Victor, which I loved. I enjoy Jill and Victor going head-to-head, and we're seeing some, um, some uh, I guess, uh, 
uh, we're seeing that maybe we're going to see more of that in the future. Couldn't find my words. Uh, so Jill walks up to Victor and confronts him, uh, telling him, you're going to be on the wrong side of history here once again. And furthermore, uh, why are you here? Why would you even want to go against Nikki? Jill has already detected that what that even Victor being involved or at this party must have ticked off Nikki in one way or another because her son's outside protesting, which, by the way, I don't know if anybody else noticed during that scene between Jill and Victor that there were these protest posters just bouncing around outside of the revolving door. And I, I, it pulled me out of the moment, to be honest with you, because I'm just imagining all of these, these you know, whatever, various people on the set at YNR, their entire job for the day was to stand in that revolving, behind the revolving door and hold these protest posters, save Crimson Lights or save the warehouse district or whatever it said. I couldn't keep my eyes off of that. I don't know why. It, it just pulled me out of the moment. Uh, but I, I am in the moment with Jill and her fight. It's not just about, it's not about the warehouse district. Ultimately, Jill has decided that her mission is to get Chancellor Industries out of Victor's clutches. She's doing it for Catherine. She's doing it for herself. But there was a beautiful moment after the, the you know that Victor and Jill were done talking, where Jill kind of comes off to the side and she's talking to Colin, and they're consorting, deciding that they're gonna do do what they can to get the company. And uh, Jill says something to the effect of. Um, there is one thing that I will always fight for, Catherine. That was a great, great moment. Although I thought maybe you got confused a little bit, Jill, because it seems like you were more about fighting with Catherine than fighting for uh, Catherine. But <laughs> whatever, I'll take it. I thought it was awesome. I, I love that Jill is on to Joe because Jill's been around. Like, Jill is... Kind of, really. The female. Now that Catherine's gone, Jill is the, the 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 business matriarch of all of the women on the show. Jill's got the business experience. She may have started out uh, in, in as a manicurist, but she rose through the ranks. She got what she wanted. She rose through the ranks of Jabot. She worked at Newman Enterprises. She worked at Chancellor Industries. So Jill's got her power suit on, and I like seeing her going head to head with Victor. And I like that she has identified identified that Joe is a snake. She's, she's, she's not a delicate flower. She's been around the block. In fact, she called him um, Mr. She called Joe Mr. Tall, Dark, and Oily. <laughs> and I thought that was brilliant. I don't know who wrote that, but it was, it was, it was perfect because I, I, I never zeroed in on that that point before, but he does put a lot of pomade in that hair. But it's believable. I believe that he's that guy. And um, it was nice to see Jill identify that. There are a lot of people who have identified that and who are wanting to be on Dylan's side in this protest, in, including Kevin. Kevin owned the coffee house at one point. He has a vested interest in making sure that it succeeds. And Kevin's kind of been in the background. I think he overheard 
shoot, somebody talking about, maybe it was Nikki and Paul, talk, somebody talking about the owner of the warehouse district, and somebody let slip the name Girolamo, which was the only clue that was out there about who owned the the, the, the holding company. So I, I loved that Kevin latched onto this little piece of information. I love... The way Kevin is now. His character is just dead on. He's been so, like, when he was with Chloe, he was so lame, and I was just losing any kind of love or respect for him, and now he's back. I love when he quotes himself from his fiction novel that he's got going on. Greg Rickhart's delivery of that is just perfect. I believe it. I love the cockiness. I love how Kevin appears to be so pleased with himself about the fact that he's written this book that, that people like, and he's got this little underground fame thing going on. He's very still in his, wearing his hacker hat, and uh, Kevin is the one who finds out the truth about who the owner is. He just does a little computer investigation, as, as one might do, and he finds out that Victor is the one behind it. Well, Kevin goes immediately to Dylan and tells him everything. I was so impressed and enthralled by Dylan's reaction to learning the truth that Victor was the one who was trying to sell that building, sell his business out from under him. Dylan just came up to one of the coffee house counters and he pounded it and he said, Victor, that never even crossed my mind, that son of a bitch. And it was so powerful and I really felt the power of Steve Burton in that moment. He, I, It took me a while to warm up to him and to see him as anything other than Jason from, from Quartermain. So seeing him here, I believed it. Um, I felt the, the power of his reaction um, and it was just wonderful. Now, at the athletic club, um, Joe is beginning his presentation. There's a lot of whiteheads in the audience, a lot of probably like rich older folks who are ready to invest. And Joe begins to lay out the development plan. Well, you know, they're gonna, I assume, just kind of bulldoze this whole downtown warehouse district area and instead redevelop it, make it nice, put in a lot of shops, put in a park, put in a bike path, put in some luxury cons. I was sold. I was, if I had any money, I'd invest in that. Let me tell you, I would love to live in one of those luxury condos. <laughs> it just seemed like a really nice place. I'm sure why or maybe they could, it'll never happen. Ultimately, the little guy will win, of course. Victor's going to lose this, right? Ultimately. Um, but I think maybe YNR should work on a little actual sketch, maybe some new sets. But I think they should. Wouldn't that be fun if it did kind of succeed and we all of a sudden got this maybe outdoor mall? Uh, if we got, you know, we could get some new sets out of this. Well, I'm always just thinking about the new sets. <laughs> but Joe is right in the middle of giving his speech to everyone as to why they should invest. And you know, Dylan comes grump, grump, grumping in right, right into the middle of Joe's presentation and confronts Victor Newman in front of everybody. Dylan puts his finger right up in Victor's face and he's like, you... You are the owner, and you've been lying to us 
oh and Nikki's of course standing in the background shocked to to hear this information and Victor's just looking at Dylan like how dare you how dare you question me in public I don't like your tone this is completely inappropriate I don't like you questioning me at all let alone in front of all of these people Victor was so it was you this you he was seething behind the mustache although did you guys notice Victor shaved his mustache there's something looking different about him this week, and I realized, man don't have no mustache. There's That should be in his contract that he has to have it or something. But he was clearly really, really freaking ticked off that Dylan would confront him publicly. Uh, it was such a good moment. That's probably my favorite moment of the entire week. But the thing is, you know, I always, I suppose, have to end up not defending Victor, but I can kind of see his perspective. To be honest with you, like, uh, just to be the devil's advocate here, on the flip side from Dylan's argument, which we all know, um, <sighs> accusing Victor of, you know, or getting mad at Victor for keeping this secret and for doing what he's doing, just for doing what he's doing is a bit like getting mad at a shark for being a shark. Victor is what he is. This is his business. This is what he uh, does. And it occurred to me for the first time this week, because I tried to look at it from Victor's point of view, that he is, Victor is, Newman Enterprises is strapped for cash because of the FCC fines that had to do with Bonaventure and all of that. So Victor needs to unload this property that he owns in order to raise funds to save his own business. So I think that is what Victor's real motive is. I don't think it has anything to do with hurting Dylan. I think Victor assumed that Dylan and everybody else would just relocate their businesses and bounce back. I, and the fact that everybody got so up in arms, I understand. I get it. You know, I mean, it's it's important to you. Uh, that area is important to you. Yes, it has cultural significance, and it's where your business currently is. But a building does not a business make. So it's real. It became personal when I think Victor just saw it as business, and now everybody else is is making it personal. It's just. I guess my point is that Victor's real mistake really, at the end of the day, was not telling everybody about it, not just being honest about it from the beginning, because it's not like he doesn't have an argument. I think the way I just explained it is the way Victor should have explained it. I think people would have, um, except maybe he would have gotten a little trouble about it, but the fact, but thinking he was going to keep it secret is just not even realistic, but it also wouldn't be very soapy if he had just come forward from the beginning. Um, of course, Nikki is standing in the background, not happy. This is just another lie. And when she and Victor just resolved no more lies last week, which we all knew meant nothing, but she immediately takes it personally after years and years and years of knowing this man, it's insane that she would take it personally. This is what Victor does, but Nikki thinks it's all about Dylan. You know, oh, you, you, you know, you, you always say you do everything for your family, but uh, you don't care about my family. You don't care about my son, but... I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I 
after thinking long and hard about it, I'm not sure that's the case. I'm not sure that this has anything to do with Dylan. I really feel like Victor's actions would have been exactly the same if Nick would have been the owner of the coffee house at the time. I think it, it is irrespective of who owns or who what businesses are in the building. I think he sees it as a way to save his business and to further his business, which is part of his family legacy. I, I really don't think it was about uh, about Dylan, and I, I really I really think he would have done the same if it if it was Nick. Now, oddly, I I was thinking too this week. Um, well. Where's the underground located? Because if any building looks like it's located in the warehouse district, it's the underground. So it's the warehousey. Is, is it is it not in danger? It it should have been. I think it would have been maybe a more interesting story, and maybe would have given Victor a little bit more credibility if the underground would have been in danger too. But that's not the case. The case is this. <sighs> It's going to push Nikki right into Paul's arms. I don't even think Victor's motives have anything to do with Paul. I just, I think, I, I kind of get how Victor thinks after all this time. It's him. It's about him and his business and his interests and everything else be damned. I don't, I, I don't think he's intending to get back at Nikki for having a child with Paul, as she had kind of asserted during their argument later. Um, but it is going to have that effect. Nikki's going to end up leaning on Paul. Um, it, Paul's the only one who kind of understands where she's coming from and knows that she's been drinking again. Paul found that out last uh, week and he's gonna be on her about this battle with alcoholism and sure enough at the very end of this series of or this storyline for the week Nikki gives into the battle I thought it was a, an excellent scene she kind of poured the glass of vodka and then walked around the room sort of stalking it like a, an animal would stalk its prey and she's saying out loud to herself all of the things that I imagine she says during the AA meetings all of the things you're supposed to say. It doesn't help. Uh, drinking this is not going to make anything better. It never does. And she's going through, she knows rationally that she should not take the drink. It's not going to help. Yet there's a physical, it really is a physical addiction. And sure enough, she goes in, takes the glass, takes a big old drink. Uh, so I imagine... It's going to bring her and Paul together ugh, and tear her down. I'm sure Nikki and Victor will survive it, ultimately. The only good thing, really, that has come out of this, about the truth coming out, um, is that now all the cards are on the table. The, the lines are drawn. Everybody knows where everybody stands on this development deal. Victor insisted that it's not squashed, that he intends to move forward with it. And I don't know, I kind of hope he does. I don't know why. <laughs> Just because I want some new sets <laughs> but uh, and you know I still like the drama as well and that's what I, you know what though what am I talking about I don't want Crips and Lights to be bulldozed so maybe we need to find some kind of um, compromise here I don't know um, but I, I know I do know 
there's a, a, I guess preview was the word I was looking for earlier. I'm starting to, you know, we're seeing signs uh, that it's going to be a Jill versus Victor future. I am loving it. Jill and Colin, they're already in. Their cards are already in for getting Chancellor away from Victor. Maybe he'll be so distracted with the warehouse deal that he'll let something slip when it comes to Chancellor. But Jill and Colin enlisted Lillian Kane this week. So it's that foursome. They're, they're deciding... Maybe they're going to let go of uh, the not-so-fun uh, life at the athletic club or the comfortable life managing the, elect uh, the athletic club. Maybe Jill, Colin, Lily, and Kane are going to become the new power foursome at Chancellor Industries. Gwen this week. Damn. She laid it all out there on the table on a snotty silver platter. Devon's been called by her. Uh, or no, 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 what was it? She, he, he gets a call that there's something wrong in one of the athletic suites, athletic club suites, so he goes to check it out, opens the door, and Gwen is standing there in this, like, incredibly sexy home mama hot mama mama. I don't know if she bought lingerie set, that she probably bought at Fenmore's or something, but shoot, I was like, go for it! It, Devon go for it what are you waiting for Hillary is a married woman you don't need her Gwen is right here she's beautiful she's intelligent she gets along with your family maybe it's time to start thinking about doing the right thing so I was I was pro I was like, go ahead go ahead Devon but he was, I think, so shocked and so torn. I mean, he's a man. She's standing there. I'm sure he was aroused by that, but he's committed to Hillary, so he kind of turns it down or um, sort of leads Gwen to understand that he was not for it, uh, and she's so embarrassed. I felt so bad for her. I just, I like her. I don't know why, but um, she was embarrassed immediately that she kind of put herself out there only to not have it returned so she leaves and uh kneels oh he's so he's just wandering around in the athletic club halls he's there as they're kind of leaving almost hears her say something about the married woman that devon's interested in blah 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 can't believe she hasn't put that together yet she knows that hillary hired her to pretend to be the girlfriend Gwen hasn't figured that out yet. But um, anyway, Neil and Devon end up having a little lunch meeting. Oh, you know, I think Devon ha or Neil had a reason to be there. He was meeting with someone. So, but anyway, Neil and Devon end up having a little bit of lunch. And Neil tells Devon that he and Hillary have decided to have a baby together. And Devon is so... Uh, completely thrown by this. He is offended. What? I just gave up the opportunity to sleep with someone, and Hillary is not only sleeping with my father, but now they're planning on having the baby together, and Devon just really kind of overreacted. He sees Gwen sitting over at the bar and goes to talk to her, and um, Hillary comes in and sits down with Neil, so it's Hillary and Neil sitting at a table, Devon and Gwen off at the bar, and to have just in a pure rage reaction, I suppose, Devon just kisses Gwen right in front of Hillary and takes her right upstairs. Uh, 
I, you know, I felt, I felt it, like it was a little bit of an overreaction on Devon's part. You could have probably talked to her considering it's all one big lie anyway. But at the same time, I'm like, you go, Devon. You, you grab Gwen and you cash in that rain check. I am just loving that Sage is beating Adam at his own game. I think she is the kind of con woman almost that I always wish Chelsea should be or the way they develop Chelsea that she should be. Chelsea has totally turned into a nice girl and she was all she always seemed mostly nice from the very beginning um, even though they painted her as a con woman. I buy Sage as a con woman and not to say she's bad to the bone but there's definitely something about her that's a little shady. She's capable of lying and I think she's able to checkmate Adam in a way that nobody else has in a long time. In fact, shoot, I'd be kind of feeling them as a couple. Really, I'd probably rather have that than Adam back with Chelsea at this point. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Is there any possible chemistry there? Uh, we saw a flashback, in quotes, scene this week where uh, it was kind of trying to reveal the nature of what Sage's real relationship with Gabriel was. And it kind of showed that they were friends, but that she loved him. I think they they had agreed that they were going to get married for uh, the sake of of, of, of Constance's will. Gabriel knew that he would not inherit the estate unless he was married. So they decided together that this would be a good way to, you know, to, to do it. Uh, and it was kind of sad watching this scene together because I almost get the sense that Gabriel was a little bit of a playboy. He maybe always had his eye out for more exciting women, yet Sage was a little more stable, maybe, um, a little more, uh, I don't know, maybe boring to him, or that he just didn't see what potential she had as a good mate, or, you know, and she, she just seemed to really love him. But it was also revealed that uh, Gabriel died on their wedding day, saving Adam, that, that, that they went to get married on the way home. They saw a figure out by the lake and Gabriel went in to save him and ended up dying. So this lends a lot more understanding to Sage's character. I mean, wow. Wow, I, I, it, that had to have been incredibly difficult for her. I think she, I think it also says something about her character that she just didn't let it go about the money or let it go with Constance. Because she, I mean, if Constance was going to die within the next year anyway, she's an old woman. There's not much you can really save her from. Uh, the lie is so much worse. I think Sage very well just should have admitted the truth and then dropped the whole uh, legacy thing, the whole inheritance thing, but um, she didn't. Sage feels like not a bad person to me, but like someone who's very well capable of a con, very well capable of a lie. Now, good old Sage reveals this week that clever Connie, oh, clever Constance, has put a provision in the will that says... Gabriel not only has to be married 
for him to get his inheritance, but that he has to be married for a total of three years. Adam was not happy to hear this information. He thought, oh, okay, well, whatever. Uh, okay, you know, you, we're married. Okay, fine. Let's get a divorce. We'll split the money 50-50, and we'll both be on our way along with our lives. Good conscience is dead. There's nothing that's keeping me from resuming my life. But no, 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 no. They have to keep up this sham for a total of three years in order to get the money. I don't think... Is, is, is Adam interested in the money? Adam... I would assume has, I mean, he would have to. He has no job. You have to have money somehow. He's getting a, a job at Jabot, so he would have that income. So I think I'm getting the impression that it's not as much about the money for Adam as it is for Sage. Sage seems to want to need the money and care about the lifestyle. Uh, Adam, I think, is going along with it because Sage is sort of blackmailing him at this point. He's not happy about it. I would imagine that he would choose being able to go on with his life and pursue Chelsea over the, any money he would have got from Constance any day of the week, but Sage is forcing him into this marriage of convenience for, a, it's like a sentence, like a prison sentence to him for three years, and he's not happy to learn this information. In fact, he gets aggressive with Sage in a way that also made me uncomfortable this week. He, he threatened her life. I don't know if it was him bluffing or not, but he said, you know, don't think I won't do it. Don't think I won't just get rid of you. I mean, nobody, if, I don't know, nobody would probably know. If I were her, I would feel afraid because this, she doesn't know Adam. She doesn't really know what he's capable of. For all the world knows, he is this horrible monster who <laughs> was twirling his mustache and flourishing his cape as he ran over a little girl on the side of the road. She doesn't really know him. I mean, she's constantly going on about how Adam doesn't know Gabriel and doesn't know what his life was like or what uh, his circumstances were, but Sage doesn't really know Adam either. So he could kill her easily, slip away. No one would ever know. They'd never be looking for him. So... Um, yeah, I don't know. It was an uncomfortable scene. I want to believe that Adam wouldn't do that. Maybe he's just um, trying to assert his dominance in the situation. He is uh, like, I think he is possibly like Sage in that he's not maybe a bad person, but he is capable of a con, is capable of a lie. He talks his way into Chelsea's condo this week, which was also creepy. He just happens to be to be wandering around in the halls outside of her condo uh, because he's looking to purchase a penthouse there. <laughs> and, oh, well, by the way, all the penthouses, the layout is the same. Would you, my realtor's late. Would you mind if I just came in, looked around. Chelsea was uncomfortable about it at first, but after everything that's gone on between her and Billy, still clearly at this stage, some doubt in her mind about uh, whether it's going to work out, what their commitment is to one another. Can they really make it work when Billy has a new baby with Victoria? I think it was that uh, and they had this kind of argument about the christening, whether Chelsea should go or not. She was ready to bow out, but Billy wanted her there. And then the second she agreed to go, he kind of pulled away. So I think Chelsea was feeling at the time uncertain about her relationship or the doubts had kind of seeped in about her relationship with Billy. So she lets Gabriel slash Adam into her condo and he's looking around. I mean, girl, don't be letting strangers into your condo. 
<laughs> of course, you know, he was just trying to get into her life. I think he, and he's, and he's, as he's there, he's um, finding a little car, a car, a toy car of Connor's, and he picks that up and ends up sneaking away with it. Billy enters in. Um, and sees him there. I think Adam, uh, just to finish that thought, I think Adam was just kind of wanting to get a sense of being inside his home with his wife and his son once again. I think it was just more about him wanting to be present in his life, even if it was for a brief moment. Uh, Billy walks in, who Adam sees as a usurper of his life, and he, Billy's curious to know, why is this guy around? I mean, he's always around. I don't like him. I get a weird vibe from him. And Gary Gabriel tells Billy, well, you know, you'll be seeing a lot more from me because Jack just offered me a job at Jabot, so we'll be seeing that soon, I'm sure. But Adam kind of ushers his way out, and Billy uh, comes up to Chelsea and shows her his bandaged finger. He was able, apparently, to make a very quickie appointment to have his wedding band tattoo removed. He really, if it was that easy to schedule the first appointment, it's understandable why Chelsea would wonder, why hasn't he done it yet? Yet, yet again, at the same time, she still hasn't taken off her engagement ring. There's a part of her that still feels very married to Adam. I mean, it's kind of different, though. I mean... Billy's relationship with with Victoria ended in divorce. Chelsea lost her husband. Um, her husband died, and I think being divorced feels probably differently than feeling widowed. I mean, Chelsea never got a chance to have any level of closure on her relationship with Adam, so I think it was much harder when we saw the moment where Chelsea takes off her ring than maybe it was for, for Billy. I was kind of empathizing with how difficult that was for Chelsea in that moment. Um, Adam has swiped this little toy car of Connor's. He goes back to Constance's mansion and he's playing with it. And Sage is there. They're in the midst of needing to plan Constance's uh, wake, her funeral. Um, and they're talking back and forth to one another. Sage is telling him, look, you still have to go through. You know, I know you're focused on your life. Uh, as Adam, but you need to be Gabriel. We still have a funeral to put on, and you need to get into playing the part. Adam seems to, at this point, have maybe started to understand that there's nothing he can do to change this situation, that he's just sort of stuck with Sage for the time being until he can come up with a better plan to get out of it. But the, the two are there waiting for a minister to show up at the house when there's a little ring at the doorbell. Who should it be? But Nick... He has stopped by with a big bouquet of flowers for his old buddy Bingo and his new friend Sage, and he—he's he, gonna—he's got good lord to figure out that something is not right there. Sage and Adam were not expecting him. They're clearly very uncomfortable by the fact that he's there, and Nick just thinks he's being a nice guy and maybe even courting a new lady because he can't help himself. And there's just this weirdness in the air that it's impossible to believe that Nick would not be able to sense. He he, he, he does seem to. He gets very um, aggressive with his questioning of both Gabriel and Sage, uh, he is ready also to ask 
his friend Gabriel about that night in the woods. Nick realizes that he realized last week that Gabriel was there and ran off and left him in the woods. And he's asking himself why. And he starts to question Gabriel about it. And he makes a scoot out of the room, never really answering the question. But there's a moment alone between Nick and Sage where he's also kind of trying to ask her about what's going on you know why he's he's figuring out that he's been lied to already in the early stages of this friendship um which is of course exactly what all of the women in nick's life do there's something about nick that says lie to me (laughs) and that's kind of what that's definitely what sage is doing now too although i don't think she wants to but nick starts to pressure her for answers about her relationship with Gabe. I looked around, you know, I mean, clearly you're living here with him, Sage. I I saw some mail that had both of your names on it. So what's the deal with your relationship? And just as uh, uh, Sage is going to probably think up a new lie to tell, Adam comes back to the room and he chimes in and just confirms that they are friends. When I thought, Adam, this would be the perfect... perfect time to bust Sage out. I really thought that Adam was going to come in and say, oh, well, the reason we live together is because we're married. Because it just seems like it would be just vengeful in the right way. You know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If he has to live with this sham marriage lie that's interfering with his romantic plans, then why shouldn't she? I was so surprised that he decided to not reveal that part of the story. I'm sure he's just maybe trying to get Nick out. I mean, if he would have said that, if he would have said they were married, Nick probably would have stopped hanging around Sage, which would have got Nick out of uh, Adam's life a little bit, because Nick is just asking too many questions. He he has this previous relationship with Gabriel, conveniently. They were all college buddies, so Nick even wants to talk about the old days a little bit, and he says something uh, about the Juliet incident, uh, forcing Adam to, I mean, Adam has no idea what the heck Nick is talking about, forcing Adam to yet again scurry to come up with answers. I was hoping that the Juliet incident was a trick. I I was hoping that Nick was being clever and coming up with something um, random and, and, and seeing if Gabriel would confirm it and, and, you know, and if he did know he was lying, I guess I just should have known better. Hmm. Nick, I love you, but you've got more hair than you've got brains. Victor was deposed by Sharon's lawyer to testify at the custody hearing? He's... What? This Sherman lawyer is supposed to be the genius, the new genius shark lawyer in town. That's like the, uh, the worst thing he could possibly do. Calling Victor to the stand on Sharon's to help Sharon's case is like the worst, per- he's the worst person to possibly call. Uh, the defense now calls to the stand, Sharon's biggest enemy. <laughs> How much sense does that make? Uh, Victor is Sharon's ex father-in-law twice by two different brothers her ex-husband he's insanely rich and powerful he's clearly got a grudge against Sharon why on earth would you even think about involving him I mean you might as well call Phyllis to the stand to testify on Sharon's behalf as well I mean who else it's just 
that made no sense to me. Uh, I guess it's just for the drama. <laughs> um, so we're going forward with this custody hearing. We have no choice in the matter. Um, there was a really powerful <laughs> scene at the coffee house this week, a confrontation between Nick and Sharon, where Sharon told Nick off. It was the telling off of the century. I was kind of proud of her because Nick is yet again accusing Sharon of being, you know, an unfit mother and all this city yickety yak. Same thing, you know, all of the, you could, it's not hard. Nick, Nick has a perspective. He has a point. Sharon's laundry list is incredibly long, but Sharon just viciously kind of comes back at him and says, you know, Nick, you are not blameless either. You abandoned your small son and your wife after our daughter died. Then you ran off and you got Phyllis pregnant. You came back to me for just a minute only to run off again. And let us not forget that you didn't tell the truth about Summer's paternity either. I thought those were, it was great. That is the argument Sharon needs to have. It makes complete sense to me. And I loved that she threw in this beautiful line to him that she said, look, we both made mistakes. Mine are just fresher. Totally true. Totally true. Could not have summed it up better. It, that's, it, it was just right. I was like, you go girl. Ah. <sighs> uh. Again, not like Nick doesn't have an argument, but I, I do like seeing Sharon stand up for herself. Um, she was not happy when Nick sees Sage before he went out to the house. He sees Sage uh, coming into the coffee house and he kind of blows Sharon off to go talk to Sage. Sharon was a little shocked because Nick just put, she was just like, talk to the hand. I got to go uh, do something else now. And Sharon's not used to being shut down that way with Nick and especially not for another woman. I think it made Sharon very jealous. I think she didn't like that Nick t stopped a conversation with her about their family to go talk to this mystery woman. Uh, and I hope that maybe Sharon's maybe going to do a little digging to find out about Sage. Maybe she can be the one to bust open the truth about what Sage is hiding. I'm not sure. Nick and Sharon can argue with each other until they're blue in the face, but what they're doing now is not helping Faith. In fact, there was an interesting little flashback scene this week. Just, I so enjoyed it. Young, fresh, Nick and Sharon having a conversation with Cassie, much like the conversation they've just had with Faith, where they're trying to explain to this little girl why mommy and daddy can't be together. It was so reminiscent uh, of, what, or it was so just, it was tied in perfectly with what's going on now. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Nick and Sharon are doing to Faith exactly what they did to Cassie. They've learned nothing. I mean, it's, it's just not good parenting. They need to put this little girl's needs first. But we've seen a lot of little hints this week that Faith um, is going to do something to get her mommy and her daddy back together. It may just be baking cookies or maybe something a little more grand plan. I don't know. But she's uh, Faith is maybe becoming a, a, a little soap schemer in the making.
Before I get too far off of uh, Chelsea, I wanted to mention that Jeff stopped by to see her this week, but instead he runs into Billy. Uh, I don't know why it occurred to me this week, but remember, remember when that actor, uh, when Jeff was the good twin? Remember he originally played, that actor originally played a twin. Uh, he was a good guy, and I think Gloria was married to him. He was maybe an attorney or something, or with Chris, but he was a real kind of square guy. What the heck was his name? Something Bardwell, obviously. Shoot, they haven't talked about it in a real long time, but they killed off that character and brought this guy back as a as the sort of evil twin. I, I don't know why I thought of that this week, but I did. Uh, Jeff is alone in the condo with Billy, and he's come to collect. Chelsea planned and promised to give uh, Jeff money for dropping his charges against Stitch. She gave him half now, half when the job was completed, and Jeff was there to collect. And Billy is trying to save Chelsea a little bit of heartache and offers to pay Jeff out of his own pocket, but it ends up opening up a little bit of a can of worms that I think Billy maybe wishes he hadn't. Um, Jeff sort of plants a seed of doubt in Billy's mind about what Chelsea's real intentions were for getting Stitch off the hook. In fact, Jeff said he kind of theorized that she didn't just want to help Stitch out of the kindness of her heart. She wanted to help clear Stitch's name so that he could move on with Victoria and leave you free, which is is very true in my opinion. I don't think Chelsea's ever really, really said that out loud, but now Billy is kind of getting the hint, getting the picture. And I, I it's, it's hard. I, I just ultimately feel like I want Billy and Victoria to get back together. I think that the two actors could have some, some good chemistry and there's just, even though Billy and Chelsea are very cute, and I think YNR is going to pretty good lengths to make us want them and think they're cute. There was the scene at the restaurant this week, and, and it's it's quirky, and I like it. Uh, but there's just this doubt that's hanging over the relationship. Billy and Victoria have a small child together. It just makes sense that they would get back together. So I don't know. I don't know if they're going to last. Um... I, I am, I did like Chelsea this week quite a bit because, especially because Sharon had been talking all week about a job interview that she wanted to try to get a job so that it makes her case look good uh, for, for, for when they go to custody trial. Uh, and it was sort of a twist that Sharon showed up for her job interview and it was at Chelsea's studio. So with a, a little bit of weirdness, Sharon is going in and asking someone who used to be her worst enemy uh, to, to, to go testify on her behalf uh, at the custody trial. No, just kidding. Um, for, a, for a job. And um, it's kind of funny because I'm not sure why, but I almost completely had forgotten about Sharon and Chelsea's history. It's just there's so much that has happened with Sharon since then. So many other rivalries that have flared up and gone since then that I almost felt it felt foreign to see Chelsea and Sharon in the room together. I sort of was starting to forget everything that they had been through. Chelsea had not. Um, Sharon was really 
kind of putting herself out on a platter there, or a, a lamb to the slaughter, but uh, but Chelsea was very kind towards Sharon, just said, you know, I, I just don't think, I can't see us working together, I don't think this is a good idea, but Sharon pleads her case, she explains to Chelsea about why she needs the job, that it has to do with faith, and Chelsea has a soft spot for that. Uh, Chelsea knows how it feels to be threatened to have your child taken away from you because Adam did the same thing to her. So the two women kind of connect. They share a few tissues and Chelsea agrees to hire Sharon. So I guess they're going to be working together. I, I, I'm wondering if there's any chance that these two women could become friends because I, I, they both could use one. I feel confused about the whole Summer Austin Mariah thing that happened this week. I don't really get it. I don't know if the writing is on the wall against Summer and Austin's relationship uh, surviving. Summer did have a really nice chat with Jack this week where she's telling him that she wants to have a career, but it's something that she wants to earn. She doesn't want to just get a job at Chabot or Newman Enterprises. She wants to actually do something because it's part of her identity, which I can kind of thank Austin for. I think being a working class guy, Summer is seeing that and admiring that and understanding the difference between earning something and having it handed to you. And it does make me respect Summer a little bit more. She, as a result of the conversation with Jack, decides that she wants to go to school and try to figure out what she has to offer and what she's good at. And Austin was totally supportive of her decision. Um, I don't know if her being in school is going to somehow drive a wedge in their relationship. I'm sure that somehow Mariah is going to use that. I just, I don't really get why Mariah keeps trying to butt into their relationship. I, 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 Mariah dislikes Summer. I get that. But I don't get why she keeps needling Austin and why Austin keeps being okay with it. Because if somebody is constantly talking down on my spouse, I'm gonna come back at ya. When you're married, you're a team. I just can't imagine being like, oh, yeah, well, you know, that's my wife. It's just, it, it makes me question Austin, too. It, it just doesn't seem right. Um, Mariah, of course, is just, she's, I don't even get what, what she's all about. I don't know that she really wants Austin, but she's constantly just bickering and fighting with them both. Maybe Austin just feels caught in the middle, but I just don't even see why he should. I don't even see why he should. He should be unequivocally on Summer's side. Maybe Mariah was just having a bad day. It was revealed that it was her birthday um, when Mariah goes to Cassie's grave, and there's already flowers there and she reveals, you know, happy birthday to us. And um, we kind of get this moment of, ah, it's night. So nobody's told her happy birthday all day, which I felt bad about. Nick shows up at the grave with flowers. And yet again, I thought, well, shoot, uh, Mariah is kind of an afterthought in all of this. I mean, 
It's her birthday too, they're twins. Everybody had to realize that. So all day, nobody thought to say anything to her, but you have time to go to the grave. I don't know, it's just something about that made me feel really bad for uh, Mariah in that moment. Uh, they do end up throwing her a little party at Sharon's house. They're making cookies, and um, it, it was real low-key, and I'm sure that they knew that Mariah wouldn't want a big party, but they're sitting around the table making these cookies, and everybody's talking about Cassie, and I really did connect with Mariah in the fact that it the whole party did feel like it was more about Cassie than it was about Mariah, and I'm not saying everybody in the family needs to stop thinking about Cassie or repress any memories or emotions that they have about her, but it did, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just connecting in with Mariah a little too much, but it did feel like, you know, I could understand, I don't know, I just could understand why she would feel a little bit out of place. I'm sure it's not easy to be in Cassie's shadow when you're the imperfect one, and she said later, I think it was Kevin, she said, I don't understand why did Cassie die and I'm still here. Cassie made one, she's a good person, made one bad decision and lost her life, whereas I'm somebody who's very flawed. I've made mistake after mistake after mistake, and yet here I am standing. It doesn't make sense to me. And um, I do appreciate that Kevin is there talking her through these emotions. I think Mariah is just a very broken and confused person, and she's being thrown into this new world, and it's a very sink or swim sort of situation. And I'm sure Kevin has felt very similarly in the past. That's uh, kind of how he came into the town. Uh, he ends up coming out to the uh, uh, Sharon's house to say happy birthday to Mariah, and he kind of crashed on the situation. They're all sitting around having a happy birthday party, and Kevin told them about the truth about Victor's involvement with the development deal. So I was like, that's kind of inappropriate. Maybe you could have waited another day to say that, but he didn't. He steps outside with Mariah, and he gives her this very geeky present. It was, um, I assume, maybe a piece of fan art from the 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 book that they're both into um it was cool though i really like it It was framed and it i just like their relationship but i i feel like i appreciate kevin's relationship with mariah more than i've appreciated any of the other relationships he's had honestly i mean the thing with Jana was dark and goth and maybe very of his of its time maybe that was sort of what was popular at the time and then the thing with Chloe was kind of cute and they did this 80s retro you know thing which again was popular at the time but yet I always always felt like Kevin was the consolation prize for Chloe but the thing with Kevin and Mariah the geekiness I think is also of its time. I think um, the Weiner's kind of capitalizing on whatever sort of subculture is becoming popular and working it into that relationship. And I like it. Um, I just think they're cute together. It feels real to me. Um, yeah, I, I would like to see Kevin and Mariah end up together. Mariah ends up coming back inside to the rest of the party, still feeling like the outsider, and Sharon tries to give her a gift of a necklace that was her and Cassie's birthstone, and Mariah flips out, and she just declares, I don't want Cassie's leftovers, and she just leaves. And I, I felt bad for Sharon in that moment because I think she was genuinely trying to give a gift to Mariah while acknowledging that Mariah had a twin. I mean, you can't pretend like you didn't, so you don't want to hide it from her, but I also understood 
why Mariah felt the way she felt. What I didn't get was the fact Mariah went back to the underground to where Austin was alone and kissed him. That made no sense to me. It totally blew my mind because I have not gotten the idea that Mariah wants Austin. Maybe I'm, maybe I just didn't pick up on it, but I, even though she is constantly kind of trying to come in between, she, uh, in between Austin and Summer, I always thought that it was just more of a, um, a jealousy thing or something. I didn't think it was because she wanted him, but there they are, smoochy smooching in the middle of the underground. Kevin walks in, of course, catches them. Summer comes in after the fact. Everybody else in the room knows that her husband just kissed another woman, and Kevin totally covers up for Mariah and squeaks her out of the room. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. Was Mariah... You tell me. Is Mariah attracted to Austin? Does she just want what Summer has? Does she just not want Summer to have what she has? Uh, and I don't understand why Kevin accepts it. I think on some level he believes that Mariah is acting out and that she really does want only him. But that's a little dangerous because it's kind of the same thing he did with Chloe. Kevin deserves, as anyone would deserve, to have someone who's into them for them and that's not really interested in someone else. So I don't know why Kevin just accepts it so readily that she's kissing another man when she's been kissing on him. Um, I don't know. I guess... I don't know. Maybe he's just a hopeless romantic. I, I was glad, though, that Austin did tell Summer the truth later. Summer, of course, wanted to go confront Mariah immediately, which I certainly would have done. But she cools herself off and ends up confiding in Abby. So I'm sure you can guess what's going to happen next week. Abby, add her to the mix and just add water. She loves getting up in other people's business. lures Kelly to Jack's office with a fake text that Kelly thinks is from Jack. So Kelly's coming right into the office like, oh, Jack, yes, you wanted to see me? Phyllis spins around in the chair to reveal that it's her. Oh, she just wants to give Kelly a piece of her mind and a follow-up warning to stay away from her man and don't think you're going to pull any wool over my eyes. I'm on to you. <laughs> it was wonderful. It was, And then it was just like a twist on top of a twist. Phyllis and Kelly naturally begin to argue. Jack starts coming around the corner. He can hear the two women uh, talking, and I think he says, Phyllis, from out in the hall. And all of a sudden, you just hear the sound of a slap and Jack walks in sees the two women standing there and Kelly's holding her face claiming Phyllis hit me I'm a victim can you believe she's crazy she lured me here with a text message from you and then she slapped me and then Kelly runs off oh it was so awesome I was happy I mean I love it I love this direction I can't even tell you how much I love this of course Kelly made it up she's becoming this crazy kooky villain and also just the look on Phyllis's face oh lord the look on Phyllis's face when Kelly's standing there lying bold faced lying claiming that Phyllis <laughs> slapped her I mean 
technically we didn't know we didn't see it but I think we know that Kelly is lying and I love the way it's being played too I love that we as the audience didn't see Kelly do it any of the things that have happened we haven't seen Kelly do there's just an implication so not only is it just creating an interesting way to tell the story but I love how this is making Phyllis look crazy she didn't need much help Michael has gone to see yet another doctor this week. And, you know, Michael made a great statement uh, just, I think, uh, before the doctor came into the office where he told Lauren, I just want to know that I can beat this cancer without losing who I am along the way. And it, it really revealed a lot about where he is in the process. He is seeking second, third, fourth opinions hoping that someone is going to tell him that the answer to the problem is not conventional uh, radiation therapy, hormone therapy, which he knows is going to make him feel like less of a man. But the doctor comes into the office and has to tell Michael that his cancer is stage three. Is that a progression? I cannot remember if it was stage two before, but the doctor does make a point of saying, your cancer is spreading quickly. We need to do treatment. And yes, again, this new doctor suggests the same treatment that all of the other doctors have suggested. And Michael doesn't want to hear that. He walks out of the office. He and Lauren go to the coffee house afterwards and uh, start arguing about it. And it, it becomes clear that Michael is not going to rest until he gets the answer that he wants in this state of mind. Michael would almost rather die than lose himself which is a very powerful concept. Um, and I think Lauren understands that and is trying to convince him in the best way that she can. She tells Michael, look, I understand where you're coming from. You're scared. And at this point, you're in denial. And she really shined a spotlight on that and made him understand and become convinced that he needs to act now, there's no two ways about it. And he does end up calling and making his first appointment for radiation therapy. It's, it's, it's really, it's sad because I don't want Michael to have to go through this either. I don't want to see him go through this. I don't want to live going through this. But I would rather have him stand a fighting chance. Ugh, very sad news this week. If you haven't heard, Bo Kayser, who played Brock on YNR, has passed away this past week. He was only 63. I don't know, um, I don't know wh what the cause of death was. I don't really know any details, and I don't know if they've released it or if I just haven't found it yet. Um, uh, but it is so very sad to hear about Brock's passing. I just always had a soft spot in my heart for him, and it's clear that a lot of people did too. I got dozens, dozens of comments on uh, Facebook this week of people just sharing their memories of Brock, and I thought it was so cool to, to read, especially because I didn't watch when he you know, originally appeared. I didn't get to 
know the younger version of Brock. I think when I came into the story or when I got to know Brock's character, it was already kind of Brock 2.0 or th uh, maybe 3.0, I don't know. I got to know Brock for the first time as Mackenzie's father was when they really, really brought him back on uh, in more of a long-term capability, or long-term capacity, excuse me. But he has popped up qu quite a bit just sporadically over the the years um since I've been watching since I started watching in 93 so I I really I did feel like I got to know the character I completely appreciated and loved his relationship with Catherine I appreciated who Brock was as a character I think I maybe do tend to gravitate toward the people who are seen as good but although I I like the bad ones too to be honest <laughs> to be real but he he was unique and that Brock seemed like a man of character and of conviction, and he had a spirituality about him that we don't really see a whole lot of these days. So that, there was something very unique about that. I, I really, I think Brock was, he, he looks like a classic soap star to me. And I wasn't watching in the 70s and, and, and 80s, so I didn't get to experience that firsthand, but I have an interest in it. And there was always something about Brock that seemed like that classic soap star to me. I think he's a very attractive man. If I was watching at the time, I probably would have been all about Brock. <laughs> I think when he came on, I ended up always seeing him more as like a fatherly leader. Um, and, and so I didn't really get to get my full uh, Brock sex appeal thing on, but I think maybe I would have. I, I really liked him. I loved reading everybody's comments about him, and I would love to continue to. So if you'd like to leave me some comments and let me know your favorite memories about Brock or, you know, any other impressions that you've had of him, I think it's a good way just to pay uh, honor to the to the character. I wonder if YNR is going to tie it into the story at all. I would think that they would need to just address it. I mean, right? Uh, the other thing is, I can't remember. Did Brock come back for Catherine's funeral? Because I feel like maybe he came back for the um, when it was revealed that she had passed away. But I don't think he was there for the funeral. Maybe I'm not remembering that correctly, but um, I think it would be nice for YNR to acknowledge it. Maybe Jill learns the truth on the phone, or maybe Jill learns of it on the phone, or and maybe they bring Mackenzie back. I don't know why she's not in the picture anyway, but I think it would be good to at least pay a little bit of homage to this character who has deep, deep roots in YNR. Um, and again, I'd like to hear what you guys have to say about Brock too. Um, so speaking of comments, I got a couple of them to read this week. Just a few because I can't believe I've talked this long. <laughs> I need to keep it a little more brief. Um, Gary had called into my voicemail this past week with obviously a million different good points, but he was kind of making a point about Sharon and the way that she was arguing with Nick and again, sort of agreeing that Sharon has a point of view, but Gary was kind of trying to convey that Sharon would um, help her case with Nick if maybe she was a little bit more contrite as opposed to being aggressive. And I think that is true. Um, Sharon does have a tendency to acknowledge what she did was wrong, but she doesn't hang on it. She's not saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. We haven't really gotten any of that. I think 
Maybe it's because Sharon tortured herself so much during the uh, process of her remembering what she did. Maybe by the time the, the, it came to the surface, she was like, I'm just done beating myself up. Maybe it's because Nick had uh, this his, his visceral reaction about it uh, so quickly afterward that Sharon just went into defense mode. But I think it is a very strong point uh, that Sharon... Um, maybe would help the custody case a little bit more if she would just connect in with Nick and say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I did this to you. But it seems she's much more on the defensive uh, than anything else and always kind of has been since the truth came out. Um, Katie left a message on Facebook that said, did you notice that Nick was really up in Sage's business on Friday? He was practically interrogating her about Constance and Gabriel and I found it quite comical. I mean, if you really think about it, they really just met not that long ago and he wants to know everything about her life, if it was me, I'd be really creeped out. I know, it was a little weird. And um, I think it was um, Nippy Fan who called into my voicemail this past week and had kind of was talking about how none of the characters on the show really uh, can be alone for very long, that they're all sort of needy. And Nick, I think, falls into that category too. I'm wondering if Nick has identified Sage as the potential mate, and so he's really getting up in her business hardcore so he can learn everything about her, only to have it dashed later when he finds out she's been lying to him. <laughs> um, speaking of Nippy Fan, um, making that point, uh, you know, there's also other characters that are exactly the same and uh, specifically Kevin um, and Nippy Fan in uh, the voicemail was saying you know Kevin maybe is exactly the same always needing to be with somebody Kevin needs to start learning how to play hard to get he's making himself a little too available with Mariah uh, and he's he's pressuring her I agree I think Kevin is definitely pushing Mariah. He's challenging Mariah. And he kind of did the same thing with Chloe, if we think back on it. Um, Nippy Fan was also saying um, that Mariah and Austin are the couple uh, that the relationship with Summer feels forced, like maybe Austin feels like he has to be with Summer. I guess I just haven't been watching it from that perspective. I just, for some reason, it has not really dawned on me that Mariah and Austin might be the couple. I need to watch for that a little better. Um, Heidi on Facebook says... I have an idea about Kelly that could work now, um, that they're turning her into a woman on a mission. I believe that she is the one who actually ran over Delia, and now Adam is back, and this is how they're going to get rid of Kelly, and Adam uh, will be off the hook. I think that's a really good theory. It, you cannot deny that they're twisting Kelly up. Um, you know, it's funny because Gary had also made a point that I'm just now thinking of, I don't know if it was this week or the week before, that uh, the character of Kelly just really hasn't ever been totally defined because she came onto the show, the original actress, very wounded bird, uh, low class or lower class, you know, not in the upper echelon. Then with the recast, Kelly changed quite a bit. She became this classical music listening, a little bit more upper crust 
uh, maybe a little bit more pinky waving uh, of a of a of a person. And now they're twisting her again into just being a little bit off balance. So it's it's I and it does feel a little bit jerky. Like maybe Weiner hasn't made a decision about the character. I haven't heard anybody um, loving Kelly so much, and I haven't really loved her that much or connected with her that much. I like her the most that I've ever liked her within the last month when they're making her interesting or a little bit off balance. And I don't know if that's why in our trying, attempting to make the character more interesting or more multidimensional or maybe even just sort of finding out who she is or if they could be getting ready to usher her off the show and pin this whole thing on her because that's also a very strong possibility, uh, pinning the Delia's death on her. Um, Samuel on Facebook says, I'm so proud of Kelly for giving Phyllis a dose of her own medicine. She told Phyllis to leave her alone, and Phyllis couldn't leave well enough alone. So now Phyllis is running around trying to threaten Kelly, but I keep saying Kelly has nothing to lose. Phyllis does. So Phyllis, I think you would want to be careful because Kelly is only devious when you push her to that point, and she has been pushed. Oh, okay, everyone. I've talked way too much. I hope that you all enjoyed this week's YNR and YNR chat. I um, really also hope that you guys keep the comments coming. I love hearing from you. You can comment on YouTube. You can comment on Twitter, Facebook. You can go to YRChat.com. You can call the voicemail at 309-588-4569. However, um, you'd prefer to convey your comment. I always read. I always love, um, and uh, I try to tie in comments that kind of work with what I'm talking about uh, into the end of each YNR chat. So leave a comment, and you may hear it uh, on the recording. <laughs> okay, all right. I've got an amazing Italian beef in t in my crock pot. It's so it's such a good recipe. It's cold here, and I was like, you know what, Italian beef sounds good. It's if you go to allrecipes.com, I think you could just search original Italian beef, and it's so easy. You just throw in the roast, throw in Ita the Italian seasonings, um, and just let it sit. It's so it's probably the best Italian beef ever. Um, it's so good, and it's in my crock pot, and it's just it's the smell is wafting in and calling me. <laughs> All right. So I gotta go eat. <laughs> I love you guys. Have a good week. I'll see you next Sunday. Bye.